You're listening to DraftKings Network. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. (laughs) Guys, you know what I love? I love when the world seeks to validate our podcast as opposed to our podcast validating the world. Did you guys watch that Daryl Morey, Doc Rivers press conference at the end of their season? Yeah, they had to do it together. Usually it's like the GM does it and then the coach does it, but they stood up there together, hand in hand, I mean. Have you ever seen any pair of people more in disgust with one another, but have to (laughs) pretend to the whole world that they love each other? Oh, I mean... I'm a child of divorce. What a silly question to ask. Of course. Of course I'm familiar with that sort of tension. The day one Illumin Army, episode one, we talked about this. Checks and balances. When that trade went down, James Harden to Philly, Ben Simmons to Brooklyn, that it wasn't done yet. The dots are being connected. The stars are aligning that Mike D'Antoni, we called it back in February. Mike D'Antoni is going to be the head coach Mm -hmm. of next year's Philadelphia 76ers. And here was the question from a reporter from Philadelphia asking Daryl Morey point blank. Can you assure the people of Philadelphia and us here that the head coach will be will be back next year? Yes. Okay. so uh, now a different question. Okay, (laughs) you get one. All right. There you have it, guys. He said, yes, they want to stay together forever. Ass on or ass off there? Oh, ass firmly on. (laughs) Ass is firmly on. Wait, wait, but when I initially heard this, I mean, I got to be honest. I was like, oh, well, Mike D'Antoni's not going to be the head coach. And then Mm -hmm. I sat on that a little bit and I realized, oh, there's something else going on here, isn't there? As we said in episode eight, aggregators with special guest Wozni Lambert of The Ringer, I can't walk away without his money, so he ain't going to quit. And Daryl ain't going to fire him and they have to owe him all that money. So we play this dance. So who wants to do this for longer? Yeah, so there's three years left on Doc Rivers' contract. So Daryl Morey has to say yes that he's bringing him back because mm-hmm. they have to show that they're going to go into this offseason in good faith. Mm-hmm. And Doc Rivers has to come out of the deal. Or... They trade him to Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. That'll be the day. Hey, they had to hold on to that 2027 first round pick for some reason, right? (laughs) Oh, my God. So let me get this straight. Daryl just won a waiting game with Ben Simmons. Mm -hmm. He waited out Ben Simmons' value and traded him for former MVP. That part didn't work out, but let's not concentrate on that. Let's focus on how he made the trade that he wanted. I think I would have to side with Daryl here. I think I would go with Team Daryl. I think Doc... Gonna hang it up. I'm going team Doc. Doc, get your money. Make that man fire you. 
Tom, you want to be the tiebreaker? Team Daryl on this one. Oh! Demo! My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> Welcome to Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstro, and always I am joined arm in arm, eye to eye to eye, with my Illuminati generals, Amin El Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. Our Frozen Envelope series will continue this week with truth teller guest Howard Beck, senior writer at Sports Illustrated, and one of the most distinguished, reputable sports writers around. He is the voice of the mainstream media. And with the draft lottery winner announced this week, we'll look back at our favorite draft lottery decisions, excuse me, conspiracy theories from years past. And in that segment, some of our friends, special guests will chime in with their favorite draft conspiracy memories. Illuminarmy, I promise you, you do not want to miss hearing those voices. But first... You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstro and Amin El Hassan. All right, on the agenda this week, we have to talk about the conference semifinals, how that all ended. It was one of the most epic days in the sports calendar. Game seven on Sunday, you had the afternoon game with the Celtics and Milwaukee Bucks. And then that night, you get a little bit of a break and you get the Dallas Mavericks taking down the Phoenix Suns. Just an absolute epic Sunday. Normally the greatest words in sports. Game seven. This is what we live for. Do or die. Everything on the line. But what did we get instead? Two games with a combined margin of 71 points. And it wasn't that close. I kind of feel like when we talk about the NBA, a lot of it feels like a funeral rather than a celebration. So like this game seven, we should be celebrating the Boston Celtics, celebrating the Dallas Mavericks. But instead, I mean, it just becomes a funeral and a slander fest on Chris Paul. This is what the mainstream wants us to talk about, right? They want to talk about Chris Paul and Chris Paul's a choker and Chris Paul's lost five game sevens. Is he going to retire? Oh, man. My favorite one was, I learned this from Stugat, so I'll take it with a grain of salt. The only player in NBA history to blow a 2-0 lead in a series five times. Is that right? Yeah, because you have to be good enough 
have to go up 2-0, Stugatz. There you go. Here's Tom, ladies and gentlemen. If you're listening and you're not watching, he just pulled out his Wake Forest cape and just tied it tightly around his neck. And he's got a big WF on his shirt. And he has come to save the day to rescue Chris Paul from people like Stugatz, but also people like Patrick Beverly. Oh, man, Tom, you were talking about funerals and... Patrick Beverly put on his finest clothes and showed up to his biggest haters funeral on Monday morning, bright and early. Finest clothes for Patrick Beverly. Is that like uh, jorts and some Timberlands? And a white tee. <laughs> and a white tee, exactly. An oversized white tee. Let's take a listen to what Patrick Beverly had to say. Man, ain't nobody worried about Chris Paul when we play Phoenix Suns. Nobody in the NBA. But what did I just say, though? And I'm just letting you know how NBA players feel and I, think. I, I believe you, but what I'm saying he's is... He's finessed the game to a point where he's he, he gets... All the petty calls, all the swipe throughs at the end. I mean, this guy is out, man. We gonna be honest. We want to be really honest. Yes. He should have fouled out. He should have fouled out. The last game too. You see the replay against Bronson. Hit him on the shoulder. Hit him in the mouth. Ref don't call anything. If that's me, oh, review it. Oh, flagrant one. If that's him, they don't call it. So let's not get it twisted, man. He should have fouled out. He can't guard. He literally can't he guard. Can't, he can't guard. Yeah. He, you, he can't – Chris Paul can't guard anybody? Is that what you say? I, did you see that? No, he can't. Everyone knows uh, that. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. No, no, no. I don't know that. I haven't heard anybody tell me that. You, yeah, because you haven't suited up. You know guys don't like to tell you all the truth. You know that. Because they scared, they scared, they scared what you're going to take with it. No, 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 no. Now, he's you know, right me, about that. They will, they will lie. Yeah, he will, he's honest. I'm they will lie. They that will is lie. true. He's not lying about man, that. Man, CP can't guard nobody, man. Everybody in the NBA know that. Everybody can't guard anybody. What we call them? Cone. You know what you do with cones? Like when in the summertime, you got a cone. You make a move. What does the cone do? Stay still. Exactly. Yeah. He's a cone. Stop playing, man. I Everybody that right. knows that. Everyone knows that. It's just y'all don't want to accept it. Didn't you guys feel like it was too much of a coincidence that magically Pat Beverly is there on the set at first take for this day? This day? No, Tom. Obviously, their producers have their schedule in line. They planned this weeks ago. This was a complete coincidence that Patrick Beverly came on to roast Chris Paul the day after the Suns were eliminated. I don't know about you guys. I had the biggest upset of the day being that Scott Foster wasn't assigned to that Game 7 in Phoenix until Monday happened, being supplanted with the biggest upset, which is Patrick Beverly found time in his extremely busy schedule (laughs) to just squeeze in a little bit of media time. I mean, how about that? How does he do it? All the meetings and stuff that he's got going on. And of course, all the great stuff he's doing on the court. Sitting there watching, I'm like, wow, what if Chris Paul did win game seven? Would they call off Pat Bev? Be like, hey, man, better luck next time. We got, we got to head back to that cardboard box. (laughs) He makes like $13 million a year. I don't care. (laughs) Boy, Skedaluka, ain't nobody afraid of anybody over there in Phoenix, man. Everybody in the league knows that, bro. Like, it's just, but y'all don't know that because y'all not in the locker room. No one's afraid of Phoenix. We wanted them. We wanted, no one's afraid of Phoenix. I I talked to some teammates. I ain't going to say who because I'm going to say who, forget it. I talked to Paul George last night, man. Pat, ain't nobody scared of them. So those who are watching the whole Pat Beverly tour on first take, they must be like, what is going on here? Damian Lillard actually asked the question on Twitter. What did CP do to you, bro? Look, he's been at him for a while. Patrick Beverly and CP, that tension has existed for a while. I remember last year, he shoved them in the back blindly as they were going to a timeout. And I never asked myself, Tom, how the hell this thing's even started? I just figured it's just guys in the league 
being competitive. It's not. A few weeks ago, Patrick Beverly was on JJ Reddick's podcast. And JJ, who was on first take much of that Pat Beverly car wash, he asked him about a month ago. What happened with Chris? What was going through your mind? You know Chris. So so, so people don't understand. <laughs> I, know, I know Chris. Right. I know Chris. So people yeah. don't understand. People don't understand. Me and Chris, this the, what we have has been going on since I was in high school. I got invited to a LeBron James camp, you know, the big Nike LeBron James camp when he was in college. Ironically, my roommate at the time, Stephen Kirk. And people don't know a lot about that. Me and him, every basketball camp, USA team, he's my roommate. Every, every single time since we were younger. Six story there. So you're on a certain team and you get a chance to play against LeBron. I think OJ Mayo was there and Chris Paul was there. I, did, I killed them, destroyed them. I'm talking about in front of every NBA scout out there. I'm just a sophomore in, in, in college. I'm going at them every play. I'm calling them a child. And then I see them in the NBA. So, of course, that energy is going to roll over to the NBA. <laughs> This guy. All right, so this whole LeBron James Skills Academy, Nike basketball camp, I don't think people realize how big a deal those things were back in the day and why like Patrick Beverly, if it indeed is true that he absolutely torched Chris Paul and the rest of them at this camp, why that's such a big deal, why that lives in his head after all these years. Okay, so first of all, let me just point out the rife inaccuracies going on there. Back in the day, Nike had these skills camps. There was the Kevin Durant wing camp. It was first Steve Nash and became Chris Paul point guard camp. It was the Amari Stoudemire, and I can't remember who else was the other big man that transitioned to after Amari. Point guards, wings, bigs would all go to these three separate camps. And then high school players. High school players. And then the best high school players from these camps would ascend to the LeBron camp. At Akron. And this is, I think, 80 of the best high school prospects come for that camp. Yep. And so the general gist of it was you had the best high school prospects getting real-time training from the best of the best that Nike had to offer. And of course, this whole thing was to make these kids want to be Nike athletes and keep this whole machine running. But the other part of it is beyond the high school campers, the camp counselors were all current NCAA players from Nike schools. So Patrick Beverly was a camp counselor and Steph Curry was a camp counselor and so on and so forth. And the beauty of this was at the end of the day, there would always be these scrimmages where you got to play with these guys, right? And that was a place where I know on the scouting trail for us, it was important intel and information to see how these guys fared playing against NBA players. So this Patrick Beverly game obviously was on your report, right? I mean, because if he's out here torching OJ Mayo and Chris Paul, this has got to be scouting lore. Right. So first of all, OJ Mayo would have been a camp counselor as well. This is 0708, right? The other part of this is Patrick Beverly mentions being a roommate with Steph Curry and having room with Steph Curry at all types of events. Since high school? Yeah, since high school. That probably wouldn't have happened since Steph Curry wasn't really on the circuit in high school. He was one of the least regarded prospects. He did a couple of AU stuff, but that was with his AAU team from Charlotte that had Anthony Morrow and a couple other former NBA players on that squad. He wouldn't have been at USA basketball, whereas Beverly, believe it or not, actually was a more heralded prospect in high school because he was coming out of Chicago. I believe they did the Hoop Dreams sequel, and it was about Patrick Beverly and some other kid. So the idea that Patrick Beverly would have destroyed O.J. Mayo and Chris Paul on the basketball court just doesn't ring true for a couple of reasons. Chief among them, Patrick Beverly wasn't that kind of player in college. I scouted him, and pretty much the scouting part of Patrick Beverly is exactly what he is now. 
He was going to be a good defensive player. He was a tremendous rebounder. That was the thing that popped off the screen when you watched him play. Despite being of short stature, this guy rebounded. But don't take my word for it. I'm going to read an entry from Draft Express. Thanks to the NBA's hand-checking and other defensive rule changes, scoring point guards are starting to come into fashion while Beverly was at Arkansas. Unfortunately, he spent a lot of time as a two-guard during his sophomore season and was not a particularly productive distributor, nor was he an explosive scorer. Yeah, that's Patrick Beverly. Despite stellar 3 and D statistics, his diminutive side and lack of demonstrated pure playmaking has him in the dreaded tweener zone at a time when combo guards are starting to gain popularity. So no one ever had him as this guy that just delivered buckets. But forget about opinions. My opinion, Draft Express's opinion, whoever's opinion. Here's the more important part. Even in his telling of that story, there's no part of him that says, I asked Chris Paul for a pointer. Chris Paul told me buzz off, right? Chris Paul humiliated me in front of everybody. There's no origin story to this. It's just, I went and I played against him and I gave him buckets. Yeah. And that's why he hates me. But everything that Patrick Beverly has done since then, it's always a one-way street, it seems to be. Him attacking Chris Paul one way or another and not much coming back. So I'm still struggling to figure out, even if it's a fictitious origin story like Shaq claiming that David Robinson wouldn't give him an autograph when he was in high school. And that's why he went at him hard every single time. Yeah. He wasn't even creative enough to come up with one of those. He just came up with a bullshit story and just try to make that his reason for life. Yeah, well, Chris Paul, of course, last year in the playoffs ended Patrick Beverly's season where he dropped 41 points in that game six against the Clippers. I'm sure Patrick Beverly gave him 42 back because, of course, (laughs) Chris Paul's a traffic cone and Patrick Beverly gives buckets, apparently. Right. Well, in this game, Patrick Beverly was on him just for a few possessions, but it wasn't like he locked up Chris Paul. Chris Paul didn't give him 41 points. But the point is the Clippers got their season ended by Chris Paul last year. So there's some bad blood there. And then even going back further, he was traded for Chris Paul. Mm-hmm. Houston trades six of their players, Montrez Harrell, Patrick Beverly, to get the rights for Chris Paul. So there's always that chip on his shoulder dating back to those camps, apparently. And then there's the trade. And then on top of that, even if we want to take him at his word about that camp back in the day and how he eviscerated and roasted Chris Paul, the NBA scouts weren't buying it because he was a second round pick and then had to go to Europe again before he came back into the league. I understand the underdog chip on his shoulder that Patrick Beverly has, but what happened on first take and what his car wash showed me is that Man, he feels deep in his loins, a deep hatred for Chris Paul. That's based on fiction. We don't even get a reason. Like, I get it if Chris Paul torched him and he felt like one day I'm going to get revenge on Chris Paul. But it's the opposite is that he torched Chris Paul. If I torched you, would I walk around angry at you (laughs) while you never said anything to me? It doesn't make sense. Maze, I got to admit, man, it's a phobe for me. Mm. This story, this Patrick Beverly story. So you agree with Matt Barnes. What I want to touch on real quick, RJ, is the disrespect I saw from Pat Beverly earlier today. You know, as as reporters, you know, part of the media, we have a job to be critical. But I think there's a, a thin line between being critical and disrespecting. And I feel like what Pat Beverly did today to Chris Paul was completely disrespectful and out of the line. And Pat Beverly's talking like he's that guy. You're not that guy. Plain and simple. Chris Paul played terrible this year, and his numbers are still better than your career numbers have ever been. So I just think you have to understand, Chris is a 12-time All-Star. He played terrible. First time, all defense nine times, seven times first team all defense. He'll be a Hall of Famer. Pat Bev and I were similar type role players. They don't talk about us when we go. They're going to talk about CP3 when he's done. And I just think the disrespect we saw earlier today on the ESPN show need to be checked because he was way out of pocket. Yes and no. I don't like that Matt's answer was like, well, as role players, we're not allowed to question or be critical in that way. 
I don't think that's the case. I think if you have valid criticisms that are backed up with facts, you can do that. But he didn't have that. He was just kind of yelling things. I don't understand why anyone gives him the time of day, to be honest with you. So you don't foresee a prolific media career in Patrick Beverly's future in your crystal ball, I mean. There's a market for blowhards everywhere. Well, I mean, my crystal ball, I'm seeing the results of the draft lottery. Ooh. Which have happened already. What? And everyone knows about, so I don't need to bother repeating them because it's such common knowledge. Yes. I mean, I've been blind to why the draft lottery is riddled with conspiracies. Can you help me see why that is? If only we had a segment that did that exact sort of thing. For those who don't know, when we started up this podcast, one of the central events that we needed to go long on, go deep on, drill down deeper, was the draft lottery. If you think that the NBA is ruled by a cabal of seven people, that cabal waits until the draft lottery to pounce. That is one of the central tentpoles of the NBA. And here we are, draft lottery. That cabal... There's a ping pong ball. (laughs) Wow. Rustling and rummaging around in there as they turn. Ping pong. There it is. Man, (laughs) let me tell you right now. This is why. Because we know it's happening. You're telling me that all of these things throughout history. Oh, Patrick Ewing in New York. Why wouldn't they do it? And what have they done to earn our trust? With so many things that have happened over the years. Fishy things. You know, we don't talk about this often. We have never asked you the question, Tom, what's your favorite NBA conspiracy? I'll tell you mine because it's not a conspiracy. It's real. The AC went out in 2014, game one. I don't give a shit what nobody says. I was in that building. I was sweltering along with everybody. I walked past that Spurs locker room and I hit that gust of cold wind. You can't tell me they didn't do it on purpose. I mean, I have one step further. You know what? Let's save that for a future episode. Mm -hmm. Let's go deep into that one because this draft lottery, we talked about with Patrick Ruby last week, but there's still so much more ground that we need to cover. And this whole idea of the draft lottery being fixed has been around since the draft lottery itself. There's so many different theories and reasons why that is. But I mean, do you have your central theory of why people think that the draft is rigged? I mean, I do, but I feel like you could learn about it a lot better from some smarter voices than ours. I wanted you guys to hear, take a listen. We talked to Bomani Jones of ESPN and of his hit show on HBO, Game Theory. Ethan Strauss, everyone's favorite substacker and host of the House of Strauss podcast. And we talked to our boss, John Skipper, the president of Metal Arc Media and the former president of ESPN. And we asked him that question. Why do people believe that the NBA lottery is rigged? Well, I think people generally think the lottery is rigged when they see a result that they don't like or that they suspect is the league influencing the result to get what they want. It's fairly absurd on its face because if the league had issues they wanted to deal with, the last one they need to deal with is faking the lottery and giving draft picks to somebody different. The commissioner reports to 30 owners. So there is no shot that the commissioner or the league is going to risk pissing off their constituents. All right, let's be real. People think that the lottery is rigged because of the first one. 
because New York got Patrick Ewing when everybody thought Patrick Ewing was going to be the dude to shut down the world. That's what flipped that whole thing up forever, and people weren't going to get around that. As the great investor Charlie Munger once said, show me the incentive, and I'll show you the result. Now, people know there's a big incentive. We're talking five players on the court for your team. You get a superstar, it swings things, people. It's known. It's worth billions of dollars now to a team, to a market, if you get that great superstar, that sure thing, that number one pick versus the other guy. And since everybody who's a sports fan at some level knows how much it matters, it makes it that much harder to trust the process. You know, hearing those answers, the fascinating thing to me is Mm. which one is your favorite? If the NBA could rig the draft lottery, and if I told you one was rigged, so many people would have different answers to that question, which draft lottery was actually rigged. And the fact that everyone has their favorite is more evidence that this is something that everyone deep down really believes. It's like a war. It's a Rorschach. Is that how they say it? Rorschach drawing. All right. Yeah. Maze. It's a Rorschach test, right? Clip it, Maze. <laughs> it's a Rorschach <laughs> test. Leave all of this in. It's like a Rorschach test, right? Like here we have like all these intelligent people saying it doesn't happen. It's not real or whatever. But when I ask them, <laughs> which one is it? Then we start to see some of the biases come out. I'm going to tell you mine. Yeah. I want to hear it. Gotta be Cleveland. 2011, the Kyrie Irving draft. The patron saying of basketball Illuminati is out there on the board. They get the number one pick the year the draft after LeBron leaves them high and dry. I know what you're thinking. Well, I mean, when LeBron left, Cleveland was one of the worst teams. So it's not that big of a stretch for them to win the lottery. They get the number one overall pick with their massive amount of ping pong balls. Yes, that would be true if that was how they won that lottery. But ladies and gentlemen, if you don't remember... The Cavs had two chances in the lottery. They had their own pick, and they had the Clippers pick from acquiring Baron Davis in a midseason deal. They took Baron Davis's contract and accepted the Clippers' completely unprotected first-round pick as a result. That pick had the 10th best chances of winning the lottery, which comes out to... 2.8%. And that 2.8% chance ended up going number one. The Clippers couldn't envision it. Nobody could envision it. Nobody other than the Illuminati. Everyone knows about the decision, I mean. There was another decision made that summer that had a little more impact on the Cavs' future. I'm surprised you left out 2013 and 2014. I mean, is that just too juicy? Is that just the <laughs> they given three? toppings on top of the Sunday there that they got three out of four number one picks? And then they have to give the last one back because LeBron came, right? Because <laughs> LeBron returned. They're like, no, you got to. It's like a refund. You, you got to refund that one back. And so they redistributed it back to Minnesota. I also love a good makeup lottery win when the league just feels like they need to throw an organization a favor, and I'm going to none other than David Stern, our favorite, Mm. squashing the Chris Paul trade. R.I.P. R.I.P. to the legend, David Stern. He knows where his own body is (laughs) buried. Chris Paul was supposed to head to the Lakers. That was nixed. That was blocked. Instead, they ended up with him going to the Clippers, and the Hornets got back the Timberwolves' unprotected first-round pick. Uh Uh-huh. And then that turned into number one pick, Anthony Davis. Just like that. I love how they do it, though, man. You see how they do it? They make you think, oh, that team's bad. It's not a stretch that they won the lottery. 
but they don't win the lottery with their own bad pick. They get someone else's pick. And how they got that someone else's pick is that the root of all of this. Now, I know what you're thinking. Anthony Davis is no longer on the Pelicans. They have a new number one pick in town. So let's go to Bomani Jones for a little more on that. Okay, cool. Now, you want to talk about years where I'd be like, oh, I see why you might think the lottery was rigged. 2019, when the Pelicans got Zion after they had lost Anthony Davis or we knew they were losing Anthony Davis, this team that the NBA wants to keep in the league, now they got the superstar. Oh, okay. And the sneaky one, 2007, where the league knows they're moving the Sonics out of Seattle to Oklahoma City and Oklahoma City winds up with Kevin Durant and the team left in the Pacific Northwest gets Greg Oden, who's supposed to be a foundational piece and player. You want to talk about a couple times where it looked like that thing was rigged? Those would be the two times that I would point to. These are all very reasonable selections here by y'all, but I got to go with 2016. Mm. (laughs) Are you trying to tell me? The Philadelphia 76ers. That was my best Amin Stephen A impression. But 2016, guys, you remember this? Dikembe Mutombo tweeted out congratulations to the Sixers on grabbing the number one spot in the NBA draft hours before the actual draft lottery took place. What? Just a coincidence that Dikembe would have that information and tweeted out, oh, deleted, total joke whatsoever. Not true, right? Total mishap by Dikembe Mutombo. By the way, he doesn't make mistakes. Dikembe Mutombo never makes mistakes. And secondly, consider the backdrop here. We had... The process is dead. Sam Hankey is gone. The NBA brings in the Colangelos, the head of Team USA Basketball. Wait, the NBA brought in the Colangelos? Oh, sorry. I wasn't supposed to say that out loud. Oh. The Colangelos are running the 76ers. Brian Colangelo and his father, Jerry Colangelo, are coming in to save the 76ers. And just days after that happens... The 76ers jump up and get the number one pick. And here comes that prospect, Ben Simmons. Mm. He's international. He's big. He's almost seven feet tall. He can pass like he's LeBron. He is the next coming. And magically, the 76ers get the number one pick. And magically, Dikemi Matumbo has that information and tweets it out. Whoopsies. Someone from the league should have wagged their finger in Dikembe's face. Or he sent that tweet. They did. That's why I deleted it. Wow. They said, no, no, no. Yeah, but you know what? You can delete your tweets. Illuminati always remembers. I wonder what Ethan Strauss and John Skipper remember. I'm a traditionalist. I'm old school. We're going 1985. Patrick Ewing frozen envelope lottery. Alleged frozen envelope lottery, I should say. I mean, it just doesn't look legit, people. You watch it. You've got David Stern fumbling around in there. It looks like a goldfish tank. He's looking for that giant envelope. You feel the tension in the room. You've got Dave DeBusher as a Knicks representative sweating bullets. The crowd goes crazy. You can feel the incentive in there. And look, we look back at it all. We say, Larry and Magic saved the NBA. In 85, I don't know if the NBA knew it was saved. It knew it had a little momentum. But you add Patrick Ewing to the Knicks, whoo, now you're really cooking with gas. So if I've got to choose one, I'm going Ewan. And of course, it is ironic that the most suspicious lottery, which may have created this parlor game of always saying it might be rigged, because in 1985, the first lottery, the New York Knicks won. And they had in that year's class, 
the consensus number one pick who everybody thought was going to lead to multiple championships was Patrick Ewing and the Knicks who did not have the most chances to win one. So I think that immediately started people on the track of, well, the league must fix this so they get the result they want. There are lots of other things they would like to fix. And if they were fixing things, I don't think the thing they would be fixing would be, we're going to make sure that some team we want to get the first pick gets the first pick. Wow. John Skipper, what a team player. And we're not done talking about the frozen envelope, guys, because we bring in our truth teller, Howard Beck, whose third eye is slammed shut when it comes to this thing. He wants proof. He's going to tell us about it. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nice. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man, you can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do something really outrageous. I'm gonna tell the truth. truth Howard Beck. How is it going, Mr. Beck? It's going. It's lottery week. I love lottery week. I've got an open tab sitting there waiting for me to continue my annual tradition of tweeting out the Game of Zones lottery episode. Maybe instead of looking to the gods, you all should be looking at yourselves. Rubbish houses with uninspiring lord commanders, foolish masters of trade, arrogant lords. No bad. These are things a knight, no matter how great, can't overcome. I learned that the hard way. Zion may be the prince who was promised, but he will not save you. Because if you don't give a goat the support he needs, then he's going to walk out the door, and all you're going to be left with is poop on the floor. All right. Well, on that note, why don't we go ahead and see who got the first pick. And the winner of the Zion lottery is House Pelicans. Which is one of the greatest Game of Zones episodes of all time to coincide with one of my favorite NBA things of all time, the lottery. I'm going to tweet it out on Tuesday in the hours leading up to because that's what we should do. It should be part of our lottery day tradition. I'm curious. Do you think guys think Tankathon, this is like their Christmas? <laughs> Tankathon.com, like that's this is the time where everyone's on there. They're hitting simulate and simulate and simulate. For sure, except, I mean, the thing is with Tankathon, it was a smart idea, right? During the tanking era, the process era Sixers, 
oh, everybody's like tanking. That's all anybody's talking about. The league's obsessed with it. The media's obsessed with it. And this, they created that site. I feel like it's post-tanking kind of vibe now. Wow. Like, it's not that teams don't do it anymore. What? You heard it here first, folks. Wow. Howard Beck says tanking is over. over. Wow. Is Tankathon as relevant in 2022 as a website as it was in 2015 is all I'm saying. I think it's even more relevant. How about that? <laughs> it's more relevant than it's ever been before. Well, you know, the draft lottery holds a special place in the NBA fan lore because of the fact that it is random. It's a drawing, but it introduces a lot of shadowy, a dark hand. We already talked last week about 1985. We were supposed to get you on for that, but we canceled because we found some evidence that you are not a believer. You're a denialist <laughs> on the 1985 fix was in that David Stern rigged it so the New York Knicks would get Patrick Ewing and win all these championships. And we found some film, Howard. I've never really understood why exactly. This one, of course, is the king of all the conspiracy theories. It's one of these things where it's fueled mostly by just cynicism, suspicion, and you know maybe even envy of fans of teams that didn't get Ewing, but it's not fueled by any actual facts. Why it lives on, why it was hatched in the first place as a theory is absolutely beyond me. Howard, we had to cancel last minute. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> allow me to present to you the face of the mainstream media, Howard Beck. <laughs> mm. yes. That's way too much responsibility for me to carry. <laughs> No, you canceled for, among other reasons, you got a much better guest. You got Patrick Ruby, who has written extensively on this for stories that have both appeared and not appeared. Mm -hmm. That was a fantastic episode with Patrick Ruby. I, I think I was vaguely aware of the broad conspiracy theory in sports story. I have a recollection of that from years ago. I didn't realize about the other story that had been spiked. So great stuff with you guys and Patrick Ruby. I like that. No, he's deflecting. Yeah. He's deflecting. Howard, there was no cross-country flight that you supposedly were on. It was us who canceled on you, not you canceling on us. Yeah, it could not have been that I was possibly out in San Francisco, hanging out with the Warriors, <laughs> getting exclusive one-on-ones for a feature that I'm working on. Ooh, flex wow. He Armstrong. He plugged it. Nice. Flex nice. Alexander. Wow. <laughs> Let's warm up Howard with what we want to be a staple of of basketball Illuminati. What's your favorite basketball conspiracy theory? So it's funny because as you guys saw in the film that you referenced, Bleacher Report, my previous employer, had done a little documentary, you know, whatever on Frozen Envelope, all that stuff. And I was the voice of skepticism there. We can come back to the 1985 eventually if you guys want to. I am staunchly anti-conspiracy theory on almost all counts. I dismiss most of this stuff out of hand. I think people just love spinning this stuff. They love talking about it. A lot of people who passionately talk about certain conspiracies, I'm not sure even they believe in them. It's just kind of fun to perpetuate and speculate on. And I think most of them are utter horseshit. <laughs> There's not a shred of evidence for any of them, including 1985 and Ewing, by the way. However, <laughs> I do have one, and I want to just preface it by saying this. I'm not saying anything untoward happened. I'm not saying I have proof of it happening. I'm saying like every other person who ever says, I'm not sure. You're asking questions. That's what we do here. We're not, we're not accusing anything. We're, we're just, just asking, asking questions. questions. Yeah. The 2011 dunk contest, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I love this. I was there that day. So that is the Blake Griffin jumping over a car, not just any car, but a Kia. Right. NBA League sponsor, Kia. Mm -hmm. JaVale McGee had one of the greatest slam dunk showings 
in the history of that competition. The totality of JaVale McGee's performance that day should have been enough for him to win, but it comes down to the finals of Blake Griffin versus JaVale McGee. The problem is before we get to the finals, there's a bunch of stuff. I won't go into it. You can find it online, folks. You can Google it. There are plenty of people who have gone way down the rabbit hole. Do your own research. They did their own research. No, but you can actually see in real time in the arena that day, it looked like Blake had gone eh, on a couple of the early dunks and he kept advancing anyway. And look, I don't believe in conspiracy theories in general. I don't even like perpetuating this one because I don't like giving life to the people who believe in all of this stuff being rigged and any piece of it being rigged means that they'll now believe in all of it. But I'd forgotten this part. I went to YouTube just to go remind myself, refresh my memory of Blake Griffin's dunk and what happened before the dunk. You remember what happened right before he jumped over the car? I do not. They brought out a freaking gospel choir. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Kenny Smith comes on the court, grabs a mic, does a whole big to-do, this big roll-up presentation before yeah. they then bring the car out. Ooh, the car. But they had a gospel choir came out to sing, I believe I can fly. <laughs> over the hood of a car, not the actual car, the hood of the car. Don't get me started on how overrated the dunk was. Or you can get me started. That's fine, too. <laughs> well, it's part of it, right? It's part of it. The fact that he won the competition is... Well, hold on. Let him arrive at that point. Because, see, Howard's a skeptic, but you could see the third eye starting to <laughs> flicker in his forehead. Like, ah, kind of. <laughs> I just did the Doctor Strange movie over the weekend. So the third eye thing is... <laughs> really freaking me out. You are now called before the Illuminati. So the car is clearly already in the arena, ready to be jumped over. And again, not any car. Blake Griffin has said in subsequent years, he had a different car in mind, some kind of convertible he wanted to jump over. And the, and the league said, no, no, no. It has to be a Kia Optima specifically. Mm-hmm. The newly redesigned Kia Optima. Yeah, wow. So what happens if Blake Griffin doesn't make the finals of the slam dunk competition? They didn't do the car in the first or second round of dunks. They were clearly saving it for the championship round. So what? He's going to get eliminated early and they're never going to bring the car out. They're never going to bring the gospel choir out that they've already paid for. All of that kind of stuff makes you think, no, they had to arrive at this moment with the gospel choir, with Kenny Smith on the mic and his very elaborate setup and with the league sponsored car driving out there. He has to make the finals for that to happen. On an average year, you're watching the dunk competition, and we might all disagree with the judges on a given dunk or whatever. That happens all the time. But when it comes out this way, where the whole time we're going, eh, how did Blake Griffin advance on that one? Why didn't DeMar DeRozan advance on that? Why didn't JaVale McGee beat it? Why didn't Serge Ibaka, I think, was the fourth one in that year? And then at the end, you see there's this elaborate thing going on with a league sponsor. How can you not be suspicious of it? So again, I want to be clear. I am not saying definitively that anything was rigged. I'm not saying there's any proof of it. I'm saying that these circumstances are as suspicious as you could possibly get without jumping to absolutism, because I don't do that. Some people get handed a sheet of dots and say, these are just random dots. I don't know what this is. Mm, And some of us grab a pencil and go... (laughs) And we connect dots. And when you connect the dots, you begin to see a picture And Howard, congratulations on keeping your third eye open, perhaps for the first time in your mainstream media life. You said, I'm not going to take the narrative that's presented, nay, force-fed to us by the powers that be. I'm going to think critically and say, does any of this make sense in a world where those dots aren't connected? And the answer unequivocally is no. No, it doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, I think the issue here is 
I think Howard and the rest of us would look at this and say, oh, nothing fishy going on here. If they just did that dunk in the first round. Yeah. The fact that they had to. What about the press release? Oh, here we go. You kind of skipped over the press release. That's the best part. I had forgotten about this until I was like Googling yesterday to refresh my memory. And I went, huh. And I have a vague recollection of this. I do not remember ever seeing this press release because as somebody noted, we in the media often ignore a lot of NBA press releases (laughs) or they go to spam or we delete them before we've ever read them. And then Tim Frank yells at us later, says, it was in the freaking press release. Why didn't you read it? Sorry, Tim. I apologize. Yeah. So for those who don't know, when you're part of the media, the big mainstream media, and you're covering the finals, you get put on a listserv or an email mailing list where Every event of the NBA Finals or of the All-Star Game, for example, of this one, you get sent a huge cascade of emails describing all the media events, where you can go, who's going to talk at them. If you have any more information or questions, please contact this person. So the NBA shuttle schedules, NBA cares events, media hospitality rooms or areas, fan festivals and the jam sessions. It's a deluge. Right. And so an hour before the dunk contest, the NBA sends out a little memo about media appearances the following day. And one of them was the K-Rock Blake Griffin showcase at 1.20 p.m. on Sunday. Remember, this is Saturday afternoon, right before the dunk contest airs. The NBA from their official PR email sends out five middle school students will showcase their dunking talents in front of 2011 NBA Sprite Slam Dunk Contest winner, Blake Griffin. Dun, dun, dun. But the dunk contest hadn't started yet, Howard. How do they know that he's the winner? Here's the thing I have to stipulate for my own behalf. I don't remember in real time seeing that email myself. Yeah, because you're in there with your tape recorder out, talking to coaches, talking to executives at All-Star players, you know, reporting. You're doing your job. Yeah. Do we know for sure? Have we ever seen? Is it possible someone who manufactured that particular thing after the fact? Do we know that that was legit? Is the telling of a press release that was sent an hour before the dunk contest that refers to Blake Griffin as the dunk contest champion, are we sure that that actually happened? Wow. Just to lay conspiracies on top of conspiracies. Whose side are you on, Howard? I can't keep up. <laughs> Seems like you're really covering for big media here. I'm just asking questions, Anthony. Oh, man. <laughs> Bless. Yes. When you're sitting there covering the 2011 dunk contest, was there a moment where you're like, this is all a sham? Or did it afterwards when you're reading all the media about it or the coverage about it, then you came to the conclusion? In real time, were you thinking something's up? In real time, I thought JaVale McGee is kicking the crap out of everybody in this contest <laughs> and should win it. That was what I remember thinking. Because the crowd is into these things, right? You can tell by the crowd whether somebody's gotten a little bit too much credit on a dunk or not enough credit on a dunk. They got undersold by the judges because the judges are sitting right there courtside holding up their numbers and the crowd reacts. All I remember thinking in real time was Blake Griffin's not kicking ass on this thing. He's a great dunker. But that was not a great dunking day for him. Again, people, you can go back to the YouTube yourself and, and see the early dunks, the earlier rounds and see whether or not he was getting some inflated scores or what appear to be inflated scores. That's the only thing I remember thinking. When the car comes out and it's a Kia <laughs> and there's a gospel choir singing. If I can up. see it, then I can do it. 
most conspiracy theories don't have a shred of evidence of anything. It's just suspicion and enough conviction behind the suspicion that you can make it say, oh, the envelope had to be frozen because the league wanted Patrick Ewing in New York. That's belief. That's not proof. That's just your belief and suspicion. Mm. We have proof of something here. We have proof that a gospel choir was already in the building. (laughs) We have proof that a Kia was already in the building and ready for Blake to do this dunk in the final round specifically. So he had to make it to the final round. That gives you enough of a basis to at least wonder. That's where this is different. Well, Howard, let me cover my third eye for a second, okay? Because I wanted to see like the sheep will do out there. Mm. You've mentioned the Kia. You've mentioned the choir. Those seem to be fixed. But Blake Griffin, he's just the dunker. Couldn't you just have JaVale McGee dunk over the Kia? Serge Ibaka, couldn't those guys do it? Wouldn't that be the same thing? Isn't Blake replaceable here? That's a great theory, except that Blake was the one who, by his own account, proposed, I'm going to dunk over a car. So it was his dunk idea. I don't think you can just say whoever gets the, I guess they could have, like if they wanted to, if the NBA wanted to just make it, you know what, we're going to do this awesome corporate sponsorship thing where we're going to have our Kia come out and whoever makes the finals, but then how do you choose who gets to dunk over the car? Because you would have had to get all four of them to agree ahead of time. If I make the finals, I'm willing to do this. Maybe not everybody would have wanted to do it. It was Blake's idea anyway, so there's that piece of it. So, no, I don't think that that is a mitigating theory. Howard, I I hear you, and you keep taking pot shots at this 85 draft lottery. Yeah. You did it in the video. You're doing it again here on the podcast. I'll be honest, man. You're our first guest with the third eye firmly shut. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you, I guess, some questions. Let's start with, why do you think people are enamored with the idea that the draft lottery in any year is fixed? It's a great question. And it goes hand in hand with this other question, which is why are people so enthusiastic about creating, believing in, and perpetuating NBA conspiracy theories more than any other, it seems like, right? Like this league seems to spawn more than most. I don't know what the answer to that is entirely. Some of it, and you guys touched on this again in, in the pod last week, people should go listen if they haven't already, but David Stern as commissioner projected this all-knowing, all-seeing, all-controlling figure, right? And David flirted with that. He kind of enjoyed it. He would wink at it. I don't think any of it actually happened that way. But David, it was both a strength and a weakness. He's sometimes a little too glib. He sometimes gets a little too cute. He sometimes likes throwing his weight around and doing it in a way that encouraged people to believe a lot of things about him specifically and by association, the association. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of that. Other things have happened along the way, right? The Tim Donaghy case happened. That happened. It spawned a bunch of other things. It gave people reason to believe a bunch of other stuff that has no proof to it. We only have proof of Tim Donaghy doing what he did. There is no proof of all the things that Tim Donaghy then, in trying to save his own ass, accused the NBA of doing, right? Yeah. Henry Abbott masterfully deconstructed all of Donaghy's BS from Donaghy's book, but that was such a flashpoint and it gave people reason to think, well, if Donaghy could be on the take and Donaghy could be in bed with gamblers and he could do all these other things, well, then everything now is believable. And I don't, to some extent, blame people for having that be fuel for their suspicions because now we had something real. It happened. It was in federal court. He was put in prison, but it doesn't make everything else true. And 85 in particular, I mean, look, the Knicks had been bad for a long time. Patrick Ewing was the 
absolute lock for the number one pick. Uh-huh. You knew he would change whatever franchise he went to. Uh-huh. Stop nodding so enthusiastically, Haverstrow. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> Don't get giddy. We're just so following. But this is the thing. So this is where I draw the line between suspicion and passionate conviction based on that suspicion versus proof. There's no reason to actually believe that the 85 lottery was fixed other than grainy, slowed down, black and white films on YouTube and a belief that the league needs the Knicks to be good. Therefore, ergo, they're going to make sure that they get Patrick Ewing. You know what's happened since that time, guys? The Knicks have been in like, I don't know, 20 lotteries or something in the last 30 years. Whoa, whoa, Maybe not 20. Whoa, a lot of whoa, them. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How many lotteries have they won? Since then, none. Well, in fact, they're getting Mike Sweetney. They're getting Jordan Hill. They're getting Frank Nielakina. If the league was so interested in having the Knicks be good and fixing things to make sure they were good, how is it possible that the year of Dwight Howard, Yao Ming, LeBron, not all of these the Knicks were in, I'm not referencing exact years, but I'm just saying plenty of guys who were locks for number one, years where there was a really strong top three, and the Knicks got top three only once in all this time that they've been in the lottery, which is RJ Barrett. So it breaks down so quickly. Sounds like they're trying to throw us off the scent, Howard. Yeah. It's not even that, guys. I mean, there's a very easy logical explanation. Right now, the NBA is this massive money-making machine where we can have a superstar player play in Oklahoma City or play in Memphis now with John Morant or Milwaukee with Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's an international game and the money prints itself. But come with me back to a time called 1985 Mm. where finals games were on tape delay. The draft wasn't even televised. The league needed, needed for basketball to be back in New York City, not Indiana, not in Sacramento, where basketball hadn't even been there yet. It was just getting there in that time. <laughs> we're still in Kansas City. Weren't they? Yeah. No, that was the year they went to Sac, right? That was the year they moved, but they hadn't gotten there yet. So yeah. basketball needed to be back in New York because it was going to move the needle in a way that today that need does not exist. And that's why the Knicks lose the lottery now because there are no stakes attached to the Knicks. We need the Knicks to save the league. Back then, they needed it. And you know what the reality is? People say, oh, Patrick never won anything. Well, he made the Knicks into a team that you had to pay attention to for the next 15 years. It worked. It worked perfectly. In your latest piece at Sports Illustrated, a great story about the NBA's profanity problem. When it comes to excessive expletives, the league isn't messing around. But why? Howard... What is going on with the league right now? No. <laughs> what the f***? It's funny. Adam has not been as much of a disciplinarian, and yet he's setting a record for finding guys for profanity. So on that level, at least. <laughs> so Byron Spruill, who's president of, of basketball operations for the league, is in charge of this stuff right now. Joe Dumars will be taking this on soon, right? Joe Dumars will be taking the role that was previously held by Kiki Vandeweghe, previously held by Stu Jackson, previously held by Rod Thorne. It's usually somebody who has been a player or coach or both in the league. Byron Spruill was somebody brought in from the outside as an executive years ago. And, and while Kiki has been in this partial consulting role while they were searching for his replacement, it's been Byron's department. So I had Byron on the phone, for, or it was a Zoom call a few weeks ago for this story. And the thing he kept coming back to was decorum. Why are you doing this decorum? Why is it bad that guys are swearing publicly in a press conference or in print? Decorum. They're not citing FCC rules. They're not saying they're worried about getting fined by the government for cursing on live broadcast TV, especially because they're mostly on cable, which is not governed by it. They're not saying they're worried about harming young children's hearts and minds with the F word. 
he just kept going back to decorum. We are trying hmm. to establish and reinforce a certain decorum. That's respect for the game rules on the court. That's not throwing stuff in the stands. And it's not dropping F-bombs. And I should note, they don't generally find if you say shit or ass or asshole, I suppose dickhead probably won't get you fined unless you're calling the referee a dickhead. <laughs> it's that really bothers them and various forms of So that's the one that correlates with all the fines this year. Four different guys fined. That's the most in any season that's really on record specifically for profanity in a public setting. Not for profanity directed at a ref, not for profanity directed at a fan, but just for saying it in a media setting. And they're so worried about it that they're even warning guys for stuff they say in a one-on-one interview with a print reporter. As DeMarcus Cousins, I was told, was warned for a bunch of curse words that he gave in an interview with Mark Spears of ESPN's Anscape. JaVale McGee, I was just reading his great ringer piece on JaVale McGee, and he uses a bunch of F-bombs in there. I'm sure he got a warning too. Let me ask you something, Howard, on that note. And Mark is a good friend of mine, so I don't mean to call him out or anything. Is there any responsibility on the journalists, particularly the print journals, right? Like you wrote for the New York Times. If I said to you, it's a f***ing travesty what's happening with the league in this regard. You wouldn't write, it's a f***ing travesty. You would write, it's a expletive deleted, it's a bleeping travesty, it's an effing. You would find some sort of euphemism that gets it across that uh, I use strong language, but doesn't necessarily feel the need to hammer home the heavy F-bomb quote. And I find that more and more now, it used to be when I was growing up, you would see something like that in Rolling Stone, right? Mm. Rolling Stone would drop the F-bomb in there. But if I'm reading the New York Times or the Daily News or whatever, like they clean that stuff up for you. And it seems like now the mainstream publications, not just the kind of highbrow, whatever you want to call Rolling Stone, they're all printing everything. Is there any responsibility on the media side to protect the person speaking or does that take away from the authenticity of the message? It's a great question. I mean, and it kind of overlaps with what the league would pose also. The league would say, why are you guys printing this? Kind of in the same way you're asking. You don't have to print that. Mm -hmm. So for example, my current employer, Sports Illustrated, allowed me this exception for this story because I thought, listen, guys, if we're going to write about this, we want to make the right impact. And besides that, I want to have some fun with this and make it at least semi-lighthearted. This is not the most serious issue in the world. And the word is not really that big of a deal, to be honest, in the year 2022 for most people. So they made the exception. Sports Illustrated allowed me to use and some other profanities in the story. But in general, the rule at Sports Illustrated is someone drops an F-bomb, you either say, as Amin said, put in a parenthetical, expletive deleted or something, or you might go F dash dash dash. And at the New York Times, they didn't even do F dash dash dash. Now, they made some exceptions of their own during a recent period of time due to a recent person who we will not discuss. But the Times in general, and certainly during my nine years there, if a guy said that game was a f***ing travesty, I would have to write that game was a travesty, he said, adding a profanity for emphasis. Mm. Because the Times doesn't do parentheticals either. You can't do anything within the quote marks that is not part of, the, of, of an actual quote. So the Times had its own very strict rules. At SI, it would be, that's a F dash 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 travesty. But the athletic prints profanity in full routinely. Mm -hmm. The ringer prints profanity in full routinely. Many other more modern online publications and outlets do it. All that stuff's on Twitter. If you're sitting there in a press conference and there's 50 people in there, 30 of them might leave the profanity out or or edit it for Twitter. The others might put it in full. Somebody's actually going to have it on their iPhone and post the video. Mm -hmm. You can't 
protect anybody from anything on this, even if you ever could. Certainly in today's media age, and this is where the league's concern comes in, people are going to see it and hear it either firsthand or eventually on social media. You're not bleeping it out. A lot of this is going out live over the air or to somebody's phone. And so I can decide to edit it myself, but somebody else in the room is not going to. Amin's question was more about the one-on-one, right? So should Mark Spears, my friend as well, shout out to San Jose, <laughs> should Spears have edited that out, whether it's to shield the reader, because, hey, it's not necessary. The reader doesn't need to hear DeMarcus Cousins cursing. You could say that. Or I should do it to protect DeMarcus Cousins now that we know that guys are getting warnings and potentially fines. This is where I have a real problem with what the league has done and the extent they're going to. You want to fine a guy for cursing on camera in a press conference? I don't think it's necessary myself, but it's not my league to run. Fine. Do what you got to do. If a guy curses to me and I run it because I think it's germane, I think it helps bring to light how passionate somebody was, how angry they were, how upset they were. And there is an authenticity that comes with their full language in its entirety. That's my call as a journalist. I get to decide what quotes I use from somebody. I shouldn't have to sit here and worry now oh no, I'm now putting this guy in harm's way because the league's going to crack down on him. Right. It's almost, it's too strong of a word to say censorship, but it's, it's like this preemptive censorship. It's basically saying like, now we have to be the gatekeepers on player profanity publicly. That's not my job. If you want to threaten them and get them to stop cursing to me and in front of cameras, fine. If they comply, fine. If they don't comply, it ain't my job to protect anybody on this. And it should not be my responsibility. Howard, you put me in a real f***ing conundrum here because what I do. I don't know whether I'm supposed to keep these f***s in this podcast. You said you had to go to your editor and ask for permission to drop all these bombs in your article. Normally they wouldn't. What are we allowed to say? What aren't we allowed to say? It's driving me nuts here, man. Yeah. I will assure you, I cannot be fined by my employer for any f*** that I have dropped on this podcast. And I assume that Dan Levitard is not fining anybody on this staff so they find people for using wrong names and different terms yeah. they don't have a swear jar like a mean tried to institute on our podcast cinephobe multiple times what's cinephobe cinephobe is a podcast for zach harper and amino hassan watch movies that are poorly rated on rotten tomatoes and ascertain whether they're accurately poorly rated or they just didn't get a fair shake produced by me wherever you get podcasts <laughs> i don't know how many times i have heard that summary not enough is the answer howard howard i got one question on this story because as i'm reading it and hearing that the nba might start going into nba players podcasts and mm. starting to litigate that or policing the language used on that podcast which Shouts to Andre Iguodala and Evan Turner at Levitard and Friends Network. Watch out. The NBA is coming for you, Andre. Oh, no. Good for Andre. Yeah, Evan could say whatever the hell he wants. He's retired. Yeah. Evan's fine. <laughs> Andre's just slipping in the chat like, all right, say this because I can't say it because yeah. Adam Silver is coming after me. As I'm reading that, Howard, it reminds me that the NBA, there's a gray area of what they can police and what they can't. And they will decide to what lengths they will go to police a certain thing that they deem to be a problem. Which brings me to this. It's been a lot of flopping in the NBA in the postseason <laughs> no. and a lot of theatrics there. No. And I know this used to be a huge initiative for the league. They introduced the flopping fines a few years ago and there have been no flopping fines. And for that matter, I can't remember a flop warning happening very recently. <laughs> so your experience is that the NBA chooses what they're going to police based on what they think is the flavor of the month or the mole that they got to whack. Yes. And then these things tend to fade. But the flopping hasn't faded. No, it has not. 
I, I have a running joke that it's fun to watch how many people on Twitter don't get. Every time, which is not many, in the last like five years that a flopping fine or warning has actually been issued, I tweeted out and saying, wow, NBA's first ever flopping warning or first flopping warning since 1973. And then people would be like, no, no, there was that one back in, in 2012 with LeBron and Roy Hibbert or whatever. <laughs> it's not the point, guys. Try to keep up. This was a huge, huge thing for a time, whatever it was. Was that like the 2010s, early 2010s, somewhere in that range, early 20-teens? And yeah, like a lot of stuff, just like they have points of emphasis every year with the officiating, stuff tends to normalize. And what, oh, we're going to crack down on traveling. Eh, well, maybe not. Maybe we're not cracking down on traveling. Oh, we're going to crack down on offensive fouls. This happens a lot. The flopping thing is kind of hilarious, though, because they made such a huge deal out of it. And it's been a total failure. They don't enforce it, though. That goes to your article on profanity is like, this is a fruitless endeavor. It's a waste of time to penalize NBA players on their language. You're probably more likely, if you message it enough, maybe you think you're more likely to get guys to stop cursing publicly because that's an easier thing to do, right? You could probably stop yourself from dropping the F-bomb more easily than in the middle of a game, especially a heated playoff game that you're really trying to win. If you think that the embellishment is going to get you somewhere, you're still going to do it, right? You'll risk the fine, you'll risk the warning, whatever. The cursing thing is like you're just throwing money away. So that's probably a more fixable problem. But I will say this before we leave the topic of profanity or before I lose track of this particular point, I guarantee this much. I'm not going to go all Charles Barkley, but I guarantee this much. With a new CBA discussion coming up very soon, I guarantee that the Players Association, somewhere down the list, won't be top 10 items, won't be top 30 items. Somewhere on that list, they're going to say, oh, by the way, NBA, you're not fining our players for cursing anymore, for expressing themselves and exercising their, I don't want to say rights to free speech. That's a different thing. The First Amendment has nothing to do with the NBA, but you're not going to tell our guys they can't curse and then fine them for that. It's bullshit. I guarantee you that that much will be part of the next CBA discussion. Yeah, because when I watch these playoffs, I'm just like, man, it'd be cool if they could actually do something to hold them accountable for these flopping. Like the one where Mike Budenholzer is just laying on the ground after the Grant Williams flop in the corner. I fell for it because I was like, man, it feels like the referees are in a tough spot because guys are diving left and right. And so I guess the NBA could come in and start penalizing and finding them, at least giving out a warning. None of that works. No. None of that works. Like money doesn't work in this case. Because if you're telling me I can win a playoff game, but it's going to cost me $25,000, $50,000, yeah. every single player, even a guy making minimum, will sign up for that. It has to be something. Much like the luxury tax didn't work until they started putting things that had nothing to do with money, right? Like the idea that you pay the luxury tax, also your mid-level exception is smaller. Also, you can't do sign and trades. That's what makes teams say, ah, I don't want to be a luxury tax pair because that means I really, really like this team and don't want to improve it any which way beyond that. So similar here, it has to be something that is impacted on the court. You get teed up if you flop. You're giving up points pretty much or possession or whatever. I mean, you're right. And that has been talked about ever since we first started talking about a flopping crackdown 10 years ago, whenever it was, right? Well, well, you got to get them in the game. The problem is in real time, this shit's impossible. And if you're going to go to replay, the last thing we need, folks, is more replay. I'm ready to scrap replay entirely. I don't like the coaches' challenges. We're going to the monitor on everything. Oh, was it a clear pass violation? Was this blow to the head incidental? Was it a flagrant? Was it just a comment? It's constant. It's absolutely maddening. 
they're extending games because of it. They're slowing the games down because of it. If anything, we need less replay, not more. And some of the stuff I just named is actually important. So I'm not going to say abolish it. But there are days where we all feel this, I think, where it's like, good Lord, they're going back to the monitor again. Everything's a review. And I don't think you can call a flop in real time accurately. And so if you want to make that the penalty, because that's the more effective one and the more relevant one, is to be on the court in real time, sure. But it's going to require a review. Do we really want that? I'll tell you what we don't need to review, folks. Howard Beck was not a flop in his appearance on Truth Tellers. What an excellent, excellent segment from him. I'm just mad that now we can't have Kia as a sponsor of this show. <laughs> Cancel the choir. <laughs> Send him home. going to unearth because we're in a feud with Nick Wright now when Nick Wright accused you of fixing the 2015 NBA finals vote. (laughs) Do you remember that, Howard? (laughs) That you guys were collaborating to make sure that LeBron didn't get a finals MVP. Wait, hold on. I don't even know what that conspiracy is. Did we conspire not to give LeBron MVP? Did we conspire not to give Steph Curry MVP? Did we conspire to give Andre Iguodala MVP? Is that actually a conspiracy to somehow benefit Rob Palenka because he was Iguodala's agent? Like, I don't even know what the 2015 finals MVP conspiracy is at this stage. He just repeated it. I just heard it. (sighs) No. Nick, Nick, Nick. Come on, Nick. Here's Nick Wright this Monday on the House of Strauss podcast. I'm not a reporter, but I have a journalism degree and I talk to people and occasionally I report things. And the only time I've ever really been called out is you got something wrong is something that I still deep down in my heart believe I mostly got right, which was the 2015 finals MVP thing. That it was something that had been told to me, not publicly. And it was that little straw poll was done and it was a three-way split essentially between Iggy, Steph and LeBron and that the Iggy and Steph voters coalesced, and that's why it was seven votes for Iggy, four votes for LeBron. I said that. The NBA came out and said, you're wrong. Voters came out and said, you're wrong. And that is still something that gets thrown in my face because I reported something that was said to be incorrect. Sidebar, for me to have been totally wrong, that would mean every single finals MVP voter watched the league MVP put up better numbers in the finals than he put up in the regular season, and not a single one voted for him. Instead, they voted for the guy with the great defense because the guy who was guarding only averaged 36, 13, and 9. It's still impossible for me to believe, but that's either here or there. That's not your question. Uh, Still going. The only thing I can tell you is, well, I'll tell you a few quick things on this. One, so there were 11 voters. I think that's the standard number. I don't think it's changed since then. That year, there were seven for Iguodala and four for LeBron. I was one of the four LeBron voters. I believe Zach Lowe and Jeff Van Gundy were two of the others. I can't remember who the fourth was. Four of us voted for LeBron. Seven people voted for Iguodala. Nobody voted for Steph Curry. Shame. People need to understand the way that this balloting works for finals MVP. If you're in an elimination game at the finals, 
This is the only time that the NBA still uses paper ballots is for times like this, right? So when we do postseason awards, Ernst & Young sends you a link. It, it goes to a website, a secure website with a bunch of drop-down menus. Wait, the Ernst & Young that once upon a time was called <laughs> Ernst & Winnie? Stop it. Continue. Don't take us back no, to continue. 1985. I mean, 2015 was a hard enough time travel for me. No, the NBA took it to 1985 by hiring them to do the accounting <laughs> and security. It's not us. They're the ones who did We're it. We're in 2015. But please, continue. The NBA has paper ballots for MVP. So if it's an elimination game, some Sometime in like the third quarter or early fourth, if it looks like it might get closed out, they come into the stands, they text you earlier on and say, are you willing to be an MVP voter tonight? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Because there's 1,200 media members. We are scattered all over the arena. There's multiple media sections. So they're coming to you. Somebody walks up, quietly hands you a piece of paper. Here's your ballot. Thanks. Okay. Tuck it away. Sometime in the fourth quarter, if it looks like it is going to be closed out, the championship's going to be won, write down the name. PR person comes back, collects your ballot, whatever. You don't know who the other voters are. There's no way of knowing that. You don't know how anybody else is deciding. Nobody off of a losing team has ever won finals MVP aside from Jerry West 500 years ago. He was the first one. First finals MVP they ever gave out was to Jerry West as a loser. The bar has to be really high for somebody to do that now, right? And I thought LeBron had crossed that bar in 2015. He was the best player in the series as far as I was concerned by far. Steph Curry had had a good series. Klay Thompson had a good series. Iguodala had had an important series from the Warriors' perspective to win it. Eh. But had anybody been outstanding in the way that we normally expect Uh, finals MVP or MVP of any event? I would say halfway through game three, throughout game six, Steph Curry was outstanding. Okay. He was outstanding. And that's one of the great tragedies of history is that the general public does not remember this. It's only seven years ago, but somehow it's a race. Everyone's like, oh, Delhi locked him up. Delhi played well in game one and game two, or it might've been halftime of game two where they said, why are you doing this? And then he ended up putting Delhi in the hospital and no one remembers that. But I get your point about LeBron being outstanding throughout all six games. Sure. Some people already do feel this and we may decide later. I may even at some point upon reflection think, man, maybe we messed that one up. But I would suggest that I did not mess it up because my feeling was LeBron was the best player in the series, which I still think was the case. If you want to blame somebody, I'm going to throw under the bus the seven Iguodala voters because if you're going to vote for somebody off the Warriors, then it should have been the guy who's responsible for that championship more than anybody else, which is Steph Curry and not Iguodala. But to the conspiracy stuff, we don't even know who else is voting. <laughs> right, right. We don't know how they're voting or why they're voting. The idea that voters amongst themselves or the league somehow got involved, that can't even happen. It's impossible. Not by timing, not by where people are sitting in the stands. They can't confer because you don't even know who the other voters are. You may not be anywhere near them. It's absolutely ludicrous. And again, big fan of Nick's, but it's irresponsible to make this into a conspiracy if he's still doing that. <laughs> what the f- just happened. <laughs>